Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 186, and it's part four of a multi-part series related to Richard K. Snagel. And this is bonus episode number two. Years after the Nagel story, Bob Yabara would write a book about the attorney that was most involved over the years in Nagel's bank case and trial, attorney Joe Calamia. The book was entitled, My Demons Were Real, Constitutional Lawyer Joe Calamia's Journey. That book contains a relatively short but action-packed chapter dedicated to the Nagel case. In it, Yabara chronicles what happened during the legal proceedings and trials from Joe Calamia's perspective, and it's worth giving voice to that here, because much of it speaks to the defense lawyer's view of Nagel's mental capacity and condition. Granted, again, he was the lawyer attempting to free his client from prison. So, there are natural biases in his story, and they are likely slanted to support his view of how things matriculated in the legal proceedings. But nevertheless, I believe what is stated here is factual, even though some of this is reminiscent of the slog that all of us just experienced in the prior Garrison episodes. Everyone has a point of view, and everyone crafts the narrative to support that point of view. But it's our job as jurors to push through it, And presenting the various views is essential to trying to understand what the truth really is here. And what I mean by truth is how much or how little should we believe about Nagel's story and how much of what we conclude one way or the other should be based on what we know about Nagel's struggles with mental health and how much of the mental health narrative that was derived in the trial was real. And how much might have been contrived, as Nagel asserted, by the government's desire to salt him away? This last question is the trickiest, and we aren't going to solve that one today. But this story will advance the ball and put us inside the mind of the lawyer, at least a little bit. So let's listen to Joe Calamia's version of the trial events. And to be fair to the author Bob Yabara and to Joe Calamia, If you are a defense attorney, you are interested in winning the case for your client, or at least securing the best possible outcome related to the legal circumstance. That is the goal. And as a defense attorney, that is what you do in life. So in trying to evaluate Joe Calamia's story and narrative, we have to keep in mind his juxtaposition in all of this. It's not a very big leap to try and craft an insanity defense in a case like this, not even knowing Nagel. You just have to believe that there was a reasonable course of action for a defense attorney to take in the circumstance, and especially because Calamia was right there, on the ground, in the flesh, representing Nagel and experiencing Nagel's condition firsthand. Nagel's outbursts and the behavior right there in court and in the jail 
are so emblematic of people with mental or emotional disorders. So Kalamia's words and thoughts expressed through his book carry weight, even when you know the narrative is skewed by the nature of who these words are being written for. This is a well-written piece, and I believe it to be factual for the most part, but like everything else that is present in the slog of it all, and I do say slog, we have to turn to what is missing from this chapter to really understand the bigger question that should have been asked and answered of his defense lawyers. What is most missing when telling this story, and that, my fellow jurors, is this. Nagel clearly indicated to his defense lawyers that there was another motive for entering the bank, something other than robbing the bank. He clearly implied to the federal agents, if not outright told them, that his motives may have had something to do with a plot to assassinate the president. All of this was known by the time that Calamia got involved with the case. The president was already dead, and the man that was accused of killing him, Lee Harvey Oswald, was already known to have passed out fair play for Cuba pamphlets. And purportedly, part of the evidence confiscated from the trunk of Nagel's car included some pamphlets for the same organization. And perhaps more damning was a copy of Lee Harvey Oswald's social security card taken from the trunk of Nagel's car, a copy of his social security card that had just below on that same sheet of paper what appeared to be three attempts at reproducing a replica of Oswald's signature. Still, there were entries in both Oswald's notebook and entries in Nagel's notebook that coincided including the same number that each had for the Cuban embassy in Mexico City that may or may not have been picked up by the FBI by that early moment in time after the assassination. But I bet it was. Anyway, the bigger point is that you would likely have to be deaf, dumb, and blind to be aware of all of this and still ignore it. And he did not ignore it. In fact, you will hear the admission that they chose strategically to set it aside. So the real story that you won't find anywhere in the narrative that follows is why Joe Calamia and his co-counsel chose to set it aside. Was it just easier from a defense attorney's standpoint to go another route? Certainly that is believable. Just line up an insanity defense and off you go. Who in the legal review community would argue that approach here, especially for an underfunded client, and I'm sure that's what Nagel was. Were they afraid that if the story was true and Nagel was somehow involved in the assassination story, that taking that to court would drag them into it in a way that might endanger their careers at the very least and perhaps their lives or the lives of their families? That certainly is believable too, although not very commendable. Or perhaps they were approached rather silently by all parties involved, the U.S. Attorney's Office or the FBI or both, or still others within the government, and apprised of the national security concerns that were most assuredly starting to become well-formed in government circles and rumored on the streets regarding the president's assassination in the aftermath of the FBI investigation and Warren Commission inquiry. That is quite possible. 
if you are a betting man, you would likely bet that this conversation was had with them at the appropriate time by someone in authority. And as a young defense attorney in El Paso, Texas, what do you do? You are faced with making a decision that by its very nature impales you on the horns of a dilemma. You must defend your client to the best of your ability, yet you cannot go in a certain direction because the nation's security could be threatened. It makes a temporary insanity plea seem like the thing to do. Now, I think I could make that decision while eating a sandwich. (laughs) I'm just saying. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened. I have no evidence of that. It's just a hypothetical. And to be fair to the lawyers in this case, wherever you fall on evaluating Nagel's story, he clearly was suffering from some mental health issues. In today's environment, the modern view might be that he had some form of severe PTSD, and in addition to what injuries he sustained in the airplane crash. Remember, his experiences in Korea were in the middle of war. They were horrific by their very nature. No doubt, all of this contributed to his many instances of erratic behavior. I don't think that is disputable in the story of Richard Case Nagel. But then again, Don't most of us experience psychological challenges at one point or another during the course of our lives? So mental health disorders are a matter of degree and timing. And the idea of labeling someone insane and the ramification for the rest of their lives, especially back in those days, may have been tantamount to a life sentence. It was not something to be taken lightly, even in the face of a 10-year sentence for robbing a bank. Okay, well, enough said about that. And now it's time to turn to the actual chapter in the book. And here now is a verbatim reading of that chapter, or most of that chapter anyway, but some sections paraphrased by me for brevity and otherwise. Some of this is redundant based on material I have already covered in some previous episodes in this series on Nagel, but I have left it in necessarily to ensure continuity for anyone just listening to this bonus episode alone. And also, some of the facts as presented in the Yabara version herein are slightly different in a couple of minor circumstances than what I have quoted about the same topic from other sources, but nevertheless, substantially the same and quite accurate, I think, for the most part. So here we go. Without further ado, let's listen to episode 186 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. The entire period was bizarre. The defendant's actions on the day of the attempted bank robbery were not those expected of a person acting with full knowledge of what was right and what was wrong. The man insisted that he did not intend to rob a bank. He only wanted to be arrested. His hint that he knew in advance of a plot to kill President Kennedy did not appear to be those of a rational person. The defendant was sometimes his worst enemy, He insisted he was mentally competent, and sometimes he wanted a lawyer, and at other times, 
He did not. Some of the things he asserted in and outside of the courtroom made sense. Other things that he uttered did not. He launched into several outbursts at his trial and pretrial hearings. Several lawyers later, Calamia was the only one to stick it out. Calamia thought that crucial evidence discovered after the trial was clear and convincing evidence that the man was insane. El Paso's new federal judge and former Austin congressman, Homer Thornberry, was not buying any arguments about insanity or about newly discovered evidence. More importantly, jurors found the man guilty. Not once, but twice. His mental capacity notwithstanding. The bizarre bank robbery episode exploded on September 20th, 1963, about two months before the Kennedy assassination. Richard K. Snagel was a 33-year-old decorated Korean War veteran who had walked into the State National Bank in downtown El Paso and asked the teller for $100 in traveler's checks. As the teller moved to get the checks, Nagel pulled out a 45 caliber pistol and told the teller, Lady, this is a real gun. The teller ran away. Nagel fired two shots at the wall near the ceiling, well above the teller's head. Then he ran out of the building. Nagel voluntarily surrendered to an El Paso police officer, James Bundren, who followed him outside the bank. The young traffic officer arrested Nagel before he could get into his illegally parked car. By the way, that's not true. Bundren was in the bank at the time of the shooting, guarding a display of special U.S. currency and diamond jewelry. To witnesses, cops, and the government, the case was simply one of a man who was caught attempting to rob a bank. Nagel had been in a Florida veterans hospital and a Los Angeles veterans clinic a few months earlier, apparently suffering from personality disorders. Nagel was not about to admit it. He told the arresting officer, Bundren, I'm glad you caught me. I really don't want to be in Dallas. Later, he told the FBI, I'd rather be arrested than be tried for treason. Much later, he claimed that the money he mailed at the downtown post office just prior to going over to the bank was destined for Lee Harvey Oswald to cover Oswald's Mexico City airfare. Long after he was tried, Nagel still spoke as a spy coming out of the cold. He claimed that it was the prior knowledge of the Kennedy assassination plot that caused his bizarre behavior on September 20th, 1963. Some 46 years later, Nagel's comment about Dallas is still buried in Officer Bundren's memory. At the time of Nagel's arrest, Bundren found a loaded revolver in the suspect's pocket and a suitcase in the trunk of his car. In the suitcase were Nagel's 1959 Army discharge as a captain and his military honors, including three Purple Hearts, and a bronze medal he received while in the Korean combat zone. By the way, that's the first time we've ever heard of a suitcase in the inventory of things that were found inside of his car. That's not included in the official listing that we read aloud in the last episode. The military papers also revealed Nagel was an Army Intelligence School graduate with service in the Army's Counterintelligence Corps. There was also a camera and a few notebooks and some fair play for Cuba leaflets. Local detectives couldn't get any information. Nagel refused to give us the time of day, they would say. Now in jail, Nagel attempted to cut his wrists with a tin can used as an ashtray, and he refused to eat his breakfast. The jail physician recommended a psychiatric examination for Nagel. 
The government charged Nagel with attempting to commit robbery in violation of U.S. code. Nagel pled not guilty, and Assistant U.S. Attorney Rainey asked Judge Thomason for a mental competency determination. Dr. R.J. Bennett, a qualified El Paso psychiatrist, had no luck in examining Nagel. That would-be robber wasn't talking to anyone. Now, appearing before Judge Thomason at a habeas corpus hearing, Nagel told the court, I had a motive for doing what I did, but my motive was not to hold up the bank. I do not intend to disclose my motive at this time. Thomason was minding El Paso's federal court, awaiting the arrival of his successor, Homer Thornberry, who was scheduled to arrive in early 1964, but actually took the role early in December 1963. Nagel's court-appointed lawyers received limited, if any, cooperation from the defendant. On the other side of the coin, Nagel was not satisfied with their services. Nagel accused James E. Hammond, his first court-appointed lawyer, of divulging confidential information. Hammond, an experienced and highly qualified attorney, denied the claim, and he was quite satisfied to be excused from the appointment. John Langford, another veteran attorney, was appointed to represent Nagel. Soon, Nagel was again dissatisfied. At a December habeas corpus meeting before Judge Thomason, Nagel ranted about his unwillingness to cooperate with psychiatrists at prison hospitals. He would cooperate, however, if the examination were held at a non-prison hospital. Then he put forth another caveat. I will not tell him my motive for going into the bank. Nagel went on, I have always acted in principle of love for my country. And this same principle actuated my conduct on September 20th, 1963. However inappropriate or incomprehensible it may appear. God and I and also the FBI know that I am not guilty. Nagel talked at random about a notebook and other items seized from him when he was arrested. Judge Thomason granted Nagel's request that the items be returned to him. Nagel's mysteriously worded statements were opening the door for strange stories about his involvement in espionage and prior knowledge of a plot to assassinate President Kennedy. The assassination of President Kennedy and the events in the weeks that followed overshadowed most local news. The quick capture of Lee Harvey Oswald was welcome news to America. However, Oswald's connection with the Soviet Union, his marriage to a Russian citizen, and his reported visits to the Soviet embassy in Mexico City elicited fears that a communist conspiracy might be behind the assassination. Then, just two days after his capture, Oswald was shot to death while in transit from the Dallas County Jail, as an entire television audience witnessed the shooting. One would think that Nagel's statements might raise national attention. After all, both Nagel and Oswald were found to have fair play for Cuba literature. But not so. After just a few days in office, President Johnson called for a commission, and interestingly enough, the Warren Commission report issued in 1964 had no mention of Nagel. Calamia had no clue that some of the Kennedy assassination conspiracy fodder would be coming out of the mouth of a client, a client that he never expected even to be representing, the matter of Richard Case Nagel. 
For the most part, the activities between Nagel and the lawmen were not before the public. Nagel remained behind bars in the El Paso County Jail. Through no one's fault but his own, Nagel had no lawyers with whom to consult. By January 1964, U.S. District Judge Thornberry was presiding over El Paso's federal court. He granted Assistant U.S. Attorney Morton's request that Nagel be taken to the federal hospital in Springfield, Missouri, to determine whether he was mentally competent to stand trial. Nagel contested any claim of treatment by a psychiatrist or any evidence of psychosis. He told of being questioned by the FBI concerning subversive activities. He told of questions by the U.S. Secret Service concerning his connection with Oswald. Nagel claimed that not all of his seized property had been returned. The doctors in Springfield received no cooperation from Nagel. However, they had the benefit of the records from the Florida and Los Angeles Veterans Facilities. In January 1963, the Florida Hospital's chief medical officer diagnosed Nagel as suffering from brain trauma, which showed passive-aggressive and paranoid behavior. Nearly five months later, the Los Angeles outpatient clinic in which Nagel had been confined diagnosed him to be suffering from depression and nervousness. Regardless of the previous findings, the Springfield doctor concluded that Nagel understood the proceedings against him and that he was able to assist in his defense. Back in El Paso, in March 1964, Nagel changed his mind. He wanted a court-appointed lawyer after all. Judge Thornberry decided it best to appoint two lawyers from the El Paso Bar Association's list of attorneys. The next two in line were Gus Rallis and Richard B. Perinot. A rather bizarre hearing took place before Judge Thornberry on April 10, 1964, Nagel filed a motion to have the court subpoena all of the FBI records related to him, including material seized from him. He wanted this information for use in his trial. Assistant U.S. Attorney Rainey opposed the subpoena because it was far-reaching and broad. Judge Thornberry denied the motion, telling Nagel that introducing irrelevant material would not be in the best interest of his defense. Nagel mentioned material taken from him in statements he made to FBI agents Murphy and White in November 1963 and January 1964. White testified that Nagel had made a statement to justify his actions, to which Nagel interrupted, I am being railroaded because I am a communist and an accused spy. Judge Thornberry restored order and denied the subpoena request. As Nagel's trial was set to start in April 1964, there were basic disagreements between Nagel and Perinot. Perinot was allowed to withdraw. Next on the El Paso bar list was Joe Calamia. On April 20th, Calamia complained that he could not prepare a defense without a complete psychiatric examination. Judge Thornberry then allowed Rallis and Calamia to withdraw, concluding that Nagel would prepare his own defense. The next day, Nagel changed his mind. Calamia went right to work. He had Nagel examined by El Paso psychiatrist Dr. Manuel Hernandez and had Dr. Hernandez and had Dr. Hernandez review Nagel's Veterans Administration clinic records. And so the trial began on May 4, 1964. Nagel was his own worst enemy. 
Calamia recalled more than 40 years later, he kept insisting on his mental competency. He refused a psychiatric examination. He refused to acknowledge that there were psychiatric findings that would render him mentally incompetent. Unfortunately, the Springfield report had reached a conclusion recommending a finding of mental competency to stand trial. Imagine that. Yet there were unanswered questions over factual knowledge and rational knowledge. Calamia was relying on the test for mental competency set by the Supreme Court in Dusky versus the United States. In Calamia's mind, he was a defense lawyer, not a Kennedy assassination investigator. The only way to keep his client out of prison was to convince jurors that Nagel was insane. Calamia focused on defending a war hero. Espionage and assassination conspiracies were outside this framework. Let's pause there because I think that's a really substantive core message for today's episode. Calamia figured that such information might distract the jury from an insanity defense. Nagel still talked about the seized property and accused the FBI of retaining it. He accused the FBI of knowing more about his secretive life than what they told the prosecution. He talked about a secret motive. Even with an insanity defense, it would still be an uphill battle. Calamia felt assured that the government had provided all the information in its possession concerning Nagel's sanity. Nagel's insistence on his sanity compounded the matter. Indeed, Nagel seemed to understand the charges. He seemed to understand the workings of the court, the prosecutor, and investigators. And Nagel even drafted a number of fairly decent legal petitions. Calamia now looked at the points of law as if with a magnifying glass. He viewed evidence as if through a microscope. Maybe Nagel's insistence that he did not intend to rob a bank was a good defense after all. Nagel's only statement at the bank was that he had a real weapon. He did not demand money. He seemed to be seeking attention. It was the government's obligation to prove that Nagel specifically intended to rob the bank. Surely, the government's evidence must show a requisite intent beyond a reasonable doubt. Nagel's trial began with testimony by the bank clerk and police officers who described the September 1963 incident. Any mention of insanity by prosecutors or witnesses or counsel prompted Nagel to call them liars. He constantly interrupted testimony despite Judge Thornberry's best efforts to control him. Nagel would jump from his chair and demand that he was not insane. Government witnesses supported Nagel's contention that he was sane. Dr. Hernandez's testimony did not help Calamia's strategy. Dr. Hernandez concluded that while Nagel's schizoid personality would keep him from controlling his behavior at the bank, Nagel could nevertheless distinguish right from wrong. When the El Paso psychiatrist testified that Nagel was suffering from a paranoid condition, Nagel angrily jumped to his feet and he objected. He quieted down when the same witness said Nagel could distinguish right from wrong. The government brought in another psychiatrist who had some knowledge of Nagel's stay at the Florida Veterans Hospital. He testified that Nagel had not shown bizarre behavior and he concluded that he could have known right from wrong the day of the attempted bank robbery. The staff psychiatrist from the Springfield Hospital offered the same conclusion. It was time for Nagel to take the stand. 
Calamia's questions were designed to show Nagel as a person who suffered a difficult youth, but who bravely fought for his country. Nagel was to be seen as a Korean War hero, thrice wounded and highly decorated. This was a hero who had advanced to the rank of captain. He was the sole survivor of a 1954 military plane crash in Maryland. After a short stay at Walter Reed Army Hospital, by the way, I wouldn't count four months as a short stay, Nagel was honorably discharged with a medical disability not related to a mental condition. And that's not quite true either. He went into the CIC. In 1958, Nagel married a Japanese woman, and the couple had two children. But by 1963, the marriage had soured, and Nagel was having a difficult time holding a job. Still looking to bolster the argument for insanity, Calamia questioned Nagel about his travel to El Paso and his plans to permanently leave the United States for Mexico. Nagel volunteered his assignments with the Army's Counterintelligence Corps and he talked about having dealt with the FBI and Secret Service and things that go on behind the scenes and within law enforcement circles. Nagel admitted that he went into the bank and fired two shots, but he insisted that he just wanted to be arrested. He would talk about his espionage activities. And after all of this, Calamia was thoroughly convinced that Nagel was insane. At this point, Nagel began to talk freely with Kalamia, in part about his Korean War injuries. Nagel told of suffering a wound in combat and eluding medics to return to combat, only to get wounded again. Then there was the 1954 plane crash. Kalamia questioned whether there could have been a brain injury that affected Nagel's personality. The conversation then turned to Nagel's stay at Walter Reed Army Hospital, following the plane crash. Nagel told about being diagnosed with a chronic brain injury problem by Dr. Edwin A. Weinstein, a highly respected neurology and psychiatry consultant for Walter Reed Hospital and the Veterans Administration. Nagel said he had told the FBI about Dr. Weinstein. Surely there was a report of his findings. Well, Calamio contacted Dr. Weinstein. Calamia was impressed with Weinstein's credentials. The man was a foremost expert on behavior changes following brain injuries. One of Weinstein's areas of expertise concerned denial of illness following brain injury. To Calamia's surprise, Weinstein was quite familiar with the brain injury case study involving Nagel. Nagel apparently suffered a brain fracture in the plane crash that damaged his brain and some of his cranial nerves. Weinstein remembered Nagel's violent behavior at the hospital and his potential for committing suicide. Nagel's denial of illness and attempts to hide information stood out among the observations. Nagel, according to Dr. Weinstein, could not completely and accurately differentiate between right and wrong. Did a report of these findings exist? Yes! and it was in the hands of the FBI and federal prosecutors. It turned out that the FBI had interviewed Dr. Weinstein not long after Nagel told them about the psychiatrist in his Walter Reed hospitalization. The government had not provided this information to Calamia, Rallis, or the other court-appointed lawyers before them. An angry Calamia filed a motion for a new trial based on crucial 
newly discovered evidence. Judge Thornberry ordered a full evidentiary hearing. By the way, the most curious aspect of all of this is how Dr. Weinstein's view of the world pivoted so dramatically in the middle of all of this. This man, Nagel, never would have been allowed to have proceeded into counterintelligence had anyone of Weinstein's credentials and credibility said that he could not distinguish between right and wrong as he was leaving Walter Reed Hospital. Think about that when you ask yourself how all of this pivoted into what it is that I'm talking about and the narrative that you're hearing right now. Okay, back to the narrative. Calamia's mind returned to the 1950s in the incident in which the state of Texas had concealed crucial information in another case. Precedent was good to have, but Calamia was well aware that the federal courts had set extremely high standards for granting a new trial. There was significant discretion given to a trial judge. The June 1964 evidentiary hearing got right into the heart of the matter. Calamia declared that he and co-counsel Rallis discovered that Dr. Weinstein had taken part in observing Nagel in Walter Reed Hospital and that there is no greater authority in the world on the subject of brain injury. Dr. Weinstein testified about his intensive study of Nagel at Walter Reed from November 1954 to April 1958. And in his more recent June 1964 interview, he described Nagel's brain injuries and his behavior. Dr. Weinstein said Nagel showed sufficient intelligence most of the time, but that Nagel also had episodes of violence, denial, and suicidal gestures. Then he declared that unless the psychiatrist had knowledge of Nagel's history, the doctor would be at a loss and confused by Nagel's behavior. Obviously, this was an attempt to disparage the conclusions by all the other psychiatrists that had opined on this up to this moment. He asserted that Nagel's denial of an illness and practice of concealing information were characteristic of his illness. As to Nagel's behavior at the bank, Dr. Weinstein made two important points. Nagel was out of touch with reality on September 20th. The bank shootout was directly associated with his mental illness. And it was Dr. Weinstein's expert opinion, and he would say that, that this was a symptom or a manifestation of disturbed brain function. And during this, his judgment and perception of reality was seriously disturbed, so much so that he could not accurately differentiate right and wrong. Outside the courtroom, Weinstein told reporters that he predicted just such things as this attempted robbery when he had Nagel at the Walter Reed Hospital. <laughs> I have to stop and chuckle. Can you imagine that's what he predicted and then the Army put him directly into counterintelligence? One of the most sensitive places that you can perform work. In some ways, this is really just a joke. It's really an amazing articulation. And how they could actually say these things, one only knows. Clearly, part of what was happening may not have been even the CIA or anybody else putting pressure on the good doctor. The good doctor may, in and of himself, have decided that his clearance of Nagel at that moment in 1954, and then all of these subsequent things that happened, had to be covered a little bit. 
because he got cleared by Weinstein to begin with. Judge Thornberry denied the motion and sentenced Nagel to 10 years in a federal prison. There is no doubt that you need treatment, he said. He added that a 10-year sentence was best, not only for your own protection and welfare, but also for society. After sentencing, Kalamia expressed concern that this hero who fought for his country and nearly paid with his life twice on the battlefield and who by all qualified evidence is insane should not be subjected to the stigma of a prison sentence. And he declared, we are confident that this judgment will be reversed on appeal. Just one week later, Nagel swallowed several tranquilizers while in the county jail in a suicide attempt. He was sent to the hospital ward in Latuna Federal Correctional Institute, some 20 miles north of downtown El Paso, near the Texas-New Mexico state line. From there, he would be sent to a public health service hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, and then he would be locked up at Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary for about 18 months until February 1966, when he was returned to El Paso County to face a new trial. In 1964, while Nagel was still behind bars, his case was appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court. Joining Calamia and Rallis in the appeal was Edward F. Sherman, who had been Judge Thomas's law clerk before the judge retired. It had not been long since Sherman had graduated from Harvard Law School. U.S. Attorney Morgan and Assistant U.S. Attorney Henry Lee Hudspeth joined Rainey and Morton in defending the conviction. The appellate record contains some 800 pages of documentation. Calamia argued that the government did not prove Nagel's intent to rob the bank or his sanity beyond a reasonable doubt. He complained of procedural errors, evidentiary errors, and a charge error. Another point alleged that the court-appointed lawyers were lulled by erroneous representations by the government that all available evidence concerning Nagel's mental state had been disclosed. The appellate court dismissed the first six claims without extended discussion and focused primarily on the seventh claim, that a new trial should have been granted on the basis of newly discovered evidence. One year and eight months after Nagel was found guilty, the Fifth Circuit Court reversed Judge Thornberry's decision and ordered a new trial. The opinion emphasized that reversing the denial of a new trial was a rare event. In a case of newly discovered evidence, the decision is left to a sound discretion of the trial judge. In this case, however, a trial judge did not prepare findings of fact or conclusions of law in support of his decision. The appellate court reiterated their hurdles and that the appellant must clear, all of which have been met. New evidence was discovered after the trial. The new evidence was not cumulative in nature. The new evidence impeached the government's evidence. It was material. The new evidence could produce a different outcome. The final test was whether counsel was diligent in discovering the evidence. Calamia's untiring effort to gain Nagel's confidence and pursuing any and all clues was an important point in the case. <laughs> Okay. Apparently, all of that evidence about the JFK assassination was not included when it came to making that remark. 
Okay, back to the narrative. At this point, there were differences over defense strategies, and there was an opportunity for voluntary commitment and a good chance that the government would dismiss the bank robbery charges. Nagel would have none of that. He had been in touch with his sister, who was seeking a new lawyer for her brother. In early April, Judge Suttle, now on the case, ruled that any new lawyer would serve under Calamia's strict supervision. Suttle ordered Nagel back to Springfield for yet another psychiatric examination. The judge wanted to ensure that Nagel was mentally competent for his second trial. Nagel's sister changed her mind about hiring another attorney. Nagel yelled as he was being led out of the courtroom, This is a mockery of justice! Before he could be sent to Springfield, Nagel barricaded himself with blankets and sheets attached to his cell door. He threatened to slash his throat if anyone tried to remove him. Somehow, he had acquired some razor blades. Nine days later, Nagel gave up. At Calamia's prodding, Nagel submitted to the mental examinations at Springfield, and in June, he was found to be mentally competent to stand trial. He was returned to the El Paso County Jail. In July, Nagel again differed with Calamia's defense strategy. Judge Suttle would not wait forever for Nagel to change his mind on a voluntary commitment possibility. Calamia was prepared to go with the insanity defense, but Nagel would not accept that he was insane. He wanted, and I quote, the truth to come out. What truth, nobody knew. Finally, Calamia struck a compromise with Nagel on a defense of temporary insanity at the time of the bank shoot-up. Nagel's second trial began about three years after the shooting at the bank. During jury selection, Judge Suttle went through a detailed explanation of the law. In the case of an insanity defense, the government had the burden of proof to show that Nagel was sane at the time of the offense. Assistant U.S. Attorneys Hudspeth and Boyd represented the government. Their strategy was to present eyewitness testimony to prove that Nagel attempted to rob the State National Bank on September 20, 1963. The government would then let the defense attorneys present Dr. Weinstein's testimony and that of the other psychiatrists who had by now changed their opinions as a result. Through cross-examination and rebuttal witnesses, the government would seek to convince jurors that Nagel was sane at the time of the shooting. Calamia and Rallis relied upon their principal witness, Dr. Weinstein, who repeated his testimony from the hearing on the motion of a new trial. He told the story of Nagel's Korean War injuries and of the brain injury Nagel suffered in the 1954 plane crash. He explained his 10-year research involving the effects of brain injuries on behavior. He referred to letters from Nagel concerning severe headaches, blackouts, repeated dreams of falling and hitting the ground and reliving the plane crash. Nagel told him nightmares about Korean combat in which Nagel smelled phosphorus and the dead. The government introduced testimony of two other psychiatrists who said that, based on their limited information, Nagel likely could tell right from wrong on the day of the incident. 
The psychiatrist who performed Nagel's most recent examination at Springfield reported a similar but qualified conclusion. This time, jury deliberations lasted several days, but in the end, they found Nagel guilty of the two-count indictment. Judge Suttle sentenced Nagel to 10 years, giving him credit for the three years he had already been behind bars. And once again, Nagel was in Leavenworth. And once again, Calamia was prepared to appeal the decision of the Fifth Circuit Court. A few months later, word was out that New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison had arrested New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw on conspiracy charges related to the assassination of President Kennedy. Shaw was acquitted in a 1969 trial. Garrison's later books added more ammunition to assassination, and so what an opportunity for Nagel to get his story out. Back at Leavenworth, following his second conviction, Nagel was soon taken to the Springfield Prisoner's Hospital. He apparently made contact with one of Garrison's investigators from there. Nagel prepared, but apparently did not file, a habeas corpus petition in federal district court in the Western District of Missouri. In January 1968, in an addition to Ramparts Magazine, a new leftist magazine, according to one of the series of articles on the Garrison investigation, Nagel's story from Leavenworth supported the theory that Oswald was the patsy in a conspiracy arranged by anti-Castro elements. Nagel had indeed sent a letter to the FBI warning of a plot to assassinate Kennedy in late September. He reminded the FBI agents of that letter while they interviewed him in the El Paso jail in December 1963. He accused the FBI of not doing enough to prevent the assassination. Also, Nagel now claimed that he was a CIA agent with an assigned task of killing Oswald after the assassination. Yeah, that's a new one. I've never heard anyone say that he was supposed to kill Oswald after the assassination. That might just be a misplaced modifier. It might mean that he just said it afterward. He said he got cold feet and opted to arrange for his arrest in El Paso. Also, Nagel now claimed that he was a CIA agent with an assigned task of killing Oswald. He said he got cold feet and opted to arrange for his arrest in El Paso. He claimed that the FBI seized his two notebooks with all sorts of information about the actors involved in the assassination plot. As a result, Nagel now claimed the government threw the book at him. While Nagel was at work on his disclosures, Calamia remained focused on his commitment to Nagel. Calamia hoped that the Fifth Circuit would see that the evidence of Nagel's insanity was overwhelming the country's foremost authority on brain injury-related behavior, so testified, and it was the government's burden to prove Nagel's sanity. How could a reasonable person consider Nagel to be sane beyond a reasonable doubt? There was also the issue of Nagel's intent on the day of the shooting. In his instructions to the jury, Judge Suttle considered it reasonable for the jury to infer that a defendant intends to commit an act if he understood all the natural and probable consequences of his conduct. In other words, if Nagel entered the bank with a gun, the jury could infer that he intended to rob it. 
Well, it took the Fifth Circuit Court more than 18 months to review the appeal, but they finally did. A panel presided by the Chief Judge Hutchison had just ruled in a similar case, Brock versus the United States. The appeal was successful, and the findings by the appellate court was that the government did not prove Nagel's sanity beyond a reasonable doubt. Nagel had already served three years, but he was free at last, and his only desire was to go to New York to be with his sister. He was still seeking greater disability compensation and custody of his children. Calamia did not hear about Nagel again until 1975, when freelance writer Dick Russell asked to see Nagel's files in Calamia's office. At Calamia's request, Russell obtained written permission from Nagel. Russell spent considerable time reviewing the files. He asked a number of questions concerning my defense of Nagel and Nagel's assertions about Oswald. Several years later, I declined another interview. Russell's book, Hired to Kill Oswald and Prevent the Assassination of JFK, came out. And in the book, Richard Case Nagel is the man who knew too much. Russell had a different take on Nagel's arrests and convictions. According to Russell's investigation and correspondence and interviews with Nagel and others, Nagel allowed himself to be arrested to avoid killing Oswald and implicated in a Kennedy assassination attempt. Russell believed that Nagel was railroaded in the courts through hospitalization and imprisonment because he knew too much. Thank you for listening to episode 186 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.